0: Good morning, good morning, good to be with you. Uh, Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. And uh, we are continuing our series on uh, the eight marks of the church. And uh, really what we're doing in this series is, is we're looking about Looking at eight things the New Testament says about the nature of the church, characteristics of the church, essential characteristics of the church. Um, Somebody had asked me if I was going to be talking about, I can't exactly remember what the topic was, but it it kind of just highlighted for me that maybe I haven't done a great job of explaining what I mean by the eight marks of the church. There's probably a lot more than eight things we could say about uh, what the church uh, could be or should be or is at its best. Um, but really what we're doing in this series is we're looking at the eight uh, essential characteristics that the New Testament highlights, um, without which the church really is not a church anymore. Um, so we're looking at things like uh, that we uh, want to be a scripture-confessing church, uh, sorry, a scripture-keeping church, a sun-confessing church, a spirit-filled church, a spirit-united church, um, a sanctifying church, a... Uh sacrament-observing church, a submitted-to-leadership church. I know everybody likes that word, submission. We're going to talk about that, I think, maybe next week. Um, And then we're going to talk uh, a couple weeks later about being the sent and scattered church. They all begin with S. I didn't come up with that on my own. Um, But I thought it it would be helpful maybe to uh, distinguish—I've been looking for a way to say this— to distinguish uh, kind of these eight characteristics from what are not marks of the church— um, what are not marks of the church? Because often when we talk about what the church is, um, we think about things like uh, worship styles, or we think about a building, um, or we think about uh, maybe the size of a congregation, and none of those things are marks of the church. None of those things are, in, are necessarily indicative of the, the health of a church. Um, moral structures... Are not a mark of the church. So things like standards of modesty, views on alcohol, or Halloween, or homeschooling, or parenting philosophies, none of those are marked of the church. And what that means is that good, sincere Christians have applied the wisdom of God in different ways at different times with regard to all of those topics. Um, a rigid culture or a sort of a leadership structure that tends to protect insiders and judging outsiders is not a mark of the church. Um, and it's important, I think, for us to just stop and say what well, is not a mark of the church because maybe depending on your background, that was part of what the church meant to you. Maybe you're reacting against that or maybe you um, have friends and family who have distanced themselves from the church because uh, their perceptions of the church have been... Um, shaped by uh, church cultures that emphasize uh, some of these things that are not essential marks of the church. When we look at the New Testament as a whole, really these eight uh, characteristics or marks of the church come to the surface. Not just in one place, but throughout the New Testament. Um, Without any of them, we really cease to be a church uh, maybe we're a club, maybe we're a good organization, but we're no longer a church. And so this morning we're going to talk about the sanctifying church, and I'm going to explain what that means uh, in just a moment, but let me invite you to stand with me as we give our attention to God's word. I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. It says this, Peter, writing to the church, but you, church... Are a holy race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, would you speak to us now? Would you convict us of our sin and lead us to Christ that we might become more like him? Would you cleanse us by the power of the gospel? Help us to hear your voice as we listen to it in your word. By the power of your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Can people change? I wonder how you would answer that question. Can can someone truly change? Um, you might think it's a simple question. You might say, well, yes, obviously, I have a friend who lost you know, 80 pounds in the last year. So clearly, that's indicative of significant change. Um, you know, uh, sometimes we see pictures of ourselves as we used to be. Uh, you know, with the help of our technology, this happens maybe more frequently now, but uh, I ran into a, a friend yesterday, a former neighbor who I haven't seen in a few years, and my first thought was, wow, a lot has, a lot has changed. You know, your kids are, are bigger than they used to be. Um, it, it would seem like, yes, obviously things can change. But I, I, I think for some of us, you know, we might be able to marshal enough evidence to say, actually, we, we tend not to change. Um, change is really hard. Um, maybe you know what it's like to look at somebody that you know well, someone that you love. Maybe to look at the person uh, looking back at you in the mirror and think, Will you ever change? Will you, will you just keep doing the same things over and over and over again? Change seems really hard. Maybe we, we would tend to think, you know, surface level change, sure, of course, people look different from time to time. Uh, but does, do people really, truly change at a deeper level? We all have things that we would like to change about ourselves. You know, things from just deep-seated habits, things we do that we wish we didn't do, maybe our personality quirks, Maybe our temperaments like incline us to be pessimistic, or uh, and, we, and we wish that we could change that. We could be a glass half full sort of a person. Um, of course, there's deeper things too—sin that we just can't seem to rid ourselves of. Coping strategies, places that we run um, for comfort, and we wish we could change them. And we wonder, can I ever? Can I ever really change? Friends, I have good news for you this morning. We believe in a God who changes people. God is in the business of changing lives. And the church is a place where those who have been changed by God journey together while he continues to transform us. And that's good news. That is good news. And this is what the Bible is talking about when it uses the word sanctification. Um, sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit. Whereby God, by his grace, changes us, transforms us, makes us more and more like Jesus. Uh, that's what the Bible is talking about uh, when it uses the word sanctification. Now you might wonder, why do we need to use a 50 cent word like sanctification? Uh, why use the word sanctification uh, when nobody really knows what it means? And uh, it can be kind of, it sounds kind of a confusing word. Um, why do we need to talk about the word sanctification? Why can't we just talk about people changing? Well, one reason I think that we need to talk about sanctification specifically is because uh, it's completely different from the way that our world tells us that we change. As humans, not just like 21st century American culture, but really if, if you think about it, uh, humans have three ways that we tend to think of uh, of change, three coping, uh, three methods for change um, that we tend to go after, and then these guilt, uh, education, and trying harder. Um, you know, just to unpack that for a second. You know, we th- we think guilt and shame will change us. Um, this was Halloween this week, and uh, I'm on this. Is anybody on that next door app? Uh, this website where your neighbors complain about things—it's really a beautiful place. Um, I thought it was just indicative of my neighbors, but apparently this is like a thing that this app just people complain. So somebody was uh, somebody had posted a video of like I don't know a teenager coming to their front door and taking a piece of candy and then looking around and then dumping the whole bowl of candy into their into their bag. And this person shared this saying. Can you believe the world that we live in? And, and, and the, the, the comments on this were just unbelievable. You should send it to the police. You should send it to the school. You should. And you're like, gosh, what, what is going on here, people? Um, but the idea that we can like, shame people into changing um, is prevalence in the world. Um, education. I think if you just had some more information, that, uh, that it would change you. Did you know that e-cigarettes are also bad for you? It's true. It's true. Uh, the knowledge of that alone is not enough to um, move the needle when it comes to vaping. Right? Um, we think that if we just know the right things, we will do the right things, and yet that is never actually true in practice. Or, or we just uh, say, well just try harder, just grit it out, you know, white knuckle it, and uh, you know, get it together. The problem with all three of these approaches to change is that they all focus on the external and none of them actually change our hearts. And what the Bible says is that God changes us from the inside and our behavior is a reflection of what's in our heart. And so sanctification, true lasting change, is God changing our hearts from the inside and then our behavior begins to flow out from that. So um, if we focus simply on guilt, education, or trying harder... Uh, At best, what we would get is behavior modification. We would exchange one set of behaviors for another set of behaviors. So for example, I would love to lose five pounds, let's just say. Uh, I would love to lose five pounds. The problem is that I love to eat. Okay, so uh, it's really hard to lose five pounds because I love to eat. And so what am I gonna do about this? Human-centered approaches to change would look like this. You know, Shane, what is wrong with you? Like, that's disgusting. You can't control, what is, what is your problem? Just get it together. Uh, education would say, you know, um, people that are in better shape live longer and sleep better at night. So just lose some weight and don't eat as much. Education um, or um, grit, willpower. Come on, you can do it. All you have to do is be just a little bit sad forever. Um <laughs> But it'll be worth it eventually, one day. It's totally in your power. Just get it together. Shame or guilt, <coughs> education, trying hard. This is how we think about changing. But sanctification is much, much deeper. Uh, sanctification is God changing us from the inside out. Sanctification is about God not just changing our behavior on the outside, but God changing what we love on the inside. He changes our hearts. He He retunes, recalibrates our spiritual taste buds uh, to love the things that he loves, and then our behavior changes as a result of our hearts being changed. So, sanctification means that we're changed by love, not just by information or effort or guilt. Sanctification, if I could just boil it down as simply as I can, uh, this is what I would want you to hear this morning. That sanctification is you becoming what you already are in Christ. Sanctification is you becoming who you already are in Christ. I want to illustrate that for you um, for a minute. And then I want to um, begin to unpack that for you. Sanctification is you becoming who you already are in Christ. Uh, What that means is that there are really two parts to sanctification. There is... Uh, the sanctification as a status and sanctification as a process uh, the status says this is who you already are the process says this is you becoming more fully who you are in Christ um, so to just explain that I, I remember uh, I will never forget the day that my first son was born uh, and you know after all the hope of pregnancy and after all of the chaos of a Somewhat traumatic labor. Um, my, my son was born uh, by C-section, and I remember uh, I remember the doctor saying, emergency C-section, not a plan C-section, and after 24 hours of labor, the doctor saying, we're going to do a C-section now. And thinking, wow, like this could go very badly very quickly. And after all of that anxiety and all of that chaos, the, the doctor pulling out my little boy and just looking at him and, and being amazed Uh, at at how wonderful he was. And at that moment, he was fully and completely, and in every legal sense of the word, my son. He could never become more my son than he was in that moment. And yet at that moment, he had no awareness of what it meant to be my son. He He had no idea what it meant to be my son. And he's grown in uh, his knowledge and, um, and his awareness. And uh, he recently turned 12. And for his 12th birthday, um, I wanted to honor him in front of his family, his brothers and his sister and his grandparents. And, and so I kind of said some of this. But I, but, I, but I said to him, son, you are leaving boyhood and you are entering manhood. And what that means is that increasingly it is my job to shape you and to mold you and to guide you into the sort of man that God is calling you to be. And really that's our task as parents, isn't it? Um, It's our job to help our children grow into the people that God has called them to be. That's what sanctification is. It is you becoming more of the person that God has created you to be. If you're in Christ, then you belong to God. That is your status objectively, and that is never going to change. <coughs> but God is also at work within you to make you more and more like the person that he's called you to be. And this is so, so important, I think, because we talk about this, and it's like, okay, that makes sense, but we live in a world that sort of says you have to have, it, have an either-or sort of approach. You either accept me as I am or you tell me that I need to change. But you can't do both. And we say these things in our culture like you do you, which is the most anti-gospel message we could ever say to anybody. Just do your own thing. It doesn't really matter. Um, We say things like accept me as I am. And friends, the gospel says that God accepts us as we are, but he will not leave us as we are. This is so critically important, because God says, I know you, I've called you to myself, and because I love you, I'm going to be at work within you, I'm going to change you into the person that I have called you to be in Christ. Sanctification is becoming who you are in Christ, who you already are in Christ. So here's what that means. Uh, It means two things. It means that you are set apart for God, and you are becoming more like Jesus. You're set apart for God, and you're becoming more like Jesus. So, firstly, it means that you are set apart for God. In um, 1 Peter 2.9, that uh, passage, first part of the passage I just read, Peter's writing to Christians who uh, are. We, we think that Peter's writing to Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and you know, in the first century, shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and uh, these Christians are living in a culture and a time that doesn't appreciate their faith, doesn't care what they believe, thinks that they are weird. Um, And these Christians are beginning to experience pushback. The culture around them is saying, you're not like us and we don't like that. Uh, They're beginning to maybe experience some measure of persecution. They're beginning to feel like, um, you know, it could affect my livelihood to continue to follow Jesus. And so Peter is writing to encourage their faith. And it's interesting that he doesn't begin by giving them instructions. He doesn't begin by telling them, Here's how you cope with living in a world that doesn't appreciate your faith. What he does is he begins by reminding them who they are. He begins by reminding them of their identity in Christ. And friends, he says the same thing with us. If you are in Christ, this is who you are. 1 Peter 2.9 But you, Peter reminds us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, People for God's own possession. This is who you are. You have been set apart for God. The word holy uh, and the word sanctified or sanctification come from the same uh, Greek word. Actually, the word saint as well. Saint, sanctified, and holy are all based on the same Greek word. And so the idea here is this that uh, you, have, um, uh, you have been set apart. By God, simply because you are in Christ, you are holy. Um, there's somewhere else where Paul kind of uses a, a slightly different analogy, but think about it like this you have your everyday dishes, uh, you have the dishes that you eat food from, you know, you eat your breakfast cereal from, you eat your everyday dinner from at home, and if your dishes are anything like ours are after 17 years of marriage, uh, some of the bowls are chipped. Um, most of the glasses have disappeared or been broken. Um, and they're great, but they're starting to, like, some of them are just misplaced. Some of them have been replaced. Some of them are, are mismatched. Um, but then, but that's your every day, and it's, it's fine. But a couple times a year on Christmas or on uh, Thanksgiving, you bring out the fine china, right? We inherited my grandmother's Royal Copenhagen china. And uh, it's this family heirloom that it, you bring it out for special occasions. And it signifies that something, you know, something special is happening here. And what Paul is saying, or what Peter is saying rather, is that that's what you are in Christ. You are special. You have been set apart for a special use by God. That is who you are, church. That is your identity. But notice. um, Well, let me add this. The word church, I mean, this is the whole idea of this series. Ekklesia, the Greek word for church, it means called out. Uh, the church is called out, set apart for, for God. We, we belong to God. But, but notice this, he doesn't say to us, like, God has called you, so try harder to be holy. He doesn't say, like, get it together, or you're not doing it very good, or a very good job. Or he doesn't say, like, your behavior is just gross, knock it off Like, that's not how a follower of Jesus should, should, uh, should behave he doesn't say that at all he says um, this is who you are you are holy, you are chosen, you are royal, it's your identity God has set you apart by virtue of God placing his name upon you in baptism and incorporating you into his family, the church you are holy that's who you are you're not holy because of your behavior. You are holy because of your status in Christ. And so, before you even begin to think about what it means to obey God, you are already holy. To make this even clearer, um, I mean, there's a lot of places I could go, but uh, can compare the way that Paul talks to two different churches in the New Testament. If if you've uh, you know if you're familiar with the Bible, uh, you you might be aware that um, most of the well you're probably aware that most of the letters of the New Testament are uh, the Apostle Paul writing to churches with problems. And, um, you know, the worst church in the New Testament is probably the the church in Corinth. Uh, The church in Corinth was a mess. Uh, The church in Corinth, they had had richer people who didn't have to work on Sunday, and so they would get to church early, and they would celebrate communion before the poorer people who had to work on Sunday uh, could get there. Um, in the church in Corinth, there was a man who was in a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. Uh, in the church in Corinth, there were Christians stepping each, uh, over each other, stepping on top of each other to kind of use the gifts that God has given them to demonstrate how important they are. Uh, the church in Corinth was a mess, and yet when Paul writes to them, he addresses them like this. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. This church that is a mess, this church where things could hardly get any worse, Paul says, you are saints, you are sanctified, you are holy. On the other end of the spectrum, the church in Philippi, and it wasn't a perfect church, but it's maybe as as close as you get. Uh, When Paul writes the book of Philippians, he writes to this church in Philippi and he says hardly anything negative at all. He's so filled with joy. He just loves this church. And yet when he addresses the church at Philippi, he says this. Uh, he, he, he's introducing himself, and he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, along with the elders and the deacons. So the best church and the worst church. God is saying, you are mine. You are holy. You are saints. You are set apart." Best and worst, regardless of your behavior, you are holy. And this is who you are, Christians. You are chosen by God. You are set apart. You are you are special. Uh, out of all of the people, God has called you. He's called you out. He calls you His own. Several years ago, actually, when I was in seminary, I was um, this would have been early two thousands. And uh, if you don't know, I, seminary is kind of grad school for pastors, Aspiring pastors, and uh, I lived, uh, Ashley and I lived in Scotland. I went to seminary in Scotland, and we were, uh, I went to this uh, conference with uh, our pastor at the time and some friends who uh, I was going to seminary with. And we, we went to this conference, and one of the main speakers was a guy named Tim Keller. Now, many of you know who Tim Keller is. Um, in the early 2000s, like very few people knew who so he didn't have, maybe he hadn't written any, any best selling books yet. Um, but, but let, if you don't know who Tim Keller is, he's like the rock star pastor in kind of our world, okay? Um, and so I go to this conference and Tim Keller is the main speaker and nobody is really, like they've heard his name and they know he's pastoring this large church in New York, but nobody really knows who he is. And he's talking to all these Scottish pastors for the most part. And what he's, he's his teaching is just kind of like blowing everybody's mind. And um, so we get to the end, of, or kind of the lunchtime <coughs> of the first day and everybody gets their really you know, uninspiring box lunch that you always get at a, at a ministry conference like this. And it's just so depressing and we're, kind of, we're getting this, this lunch and we're gathering up with uh, my pastor at the time and some of his friends and somebody starts talking about like, what do you think about what this, this guy Tim Keller is saying? And at that moment, Tim Keller walks into the lunch room where there's maybe 300 people eating lunch and he kind of, a little bit over the crowd, says, Hey, Bryce and Jonathan, my friend, um, come on, we're going to go have lunch together. <laughs> and uh, my friend had, like, emailed his secretary and said, Can we have lunch with Tim? And, and so in this crowd, where everybody's sitting there going, This, this stuff he's saying is incredible. The, the, the incredible person comes in and calls us out and says, You're coming with me. We're going to lunch. And this group of, you know, my pastor's friends are like, who are these guys and why, why do they get the, the special treatment? Whether that makes any difference to you in regard to Tim Keller is, is a whole other matter. But you get the idea, right? <laughs> and that's what God is saying is true of you. Not because of anything you've done, but because of who Jesus is. He has called you out and he has called you to himself. You are holy. You are holy because Jesus has called you. You are set apart for God. But the second thing it means to be sanctified is this, you are becoming more like Jesus. You are becoming more like Jesus. Peter, um, having kind of established that first point in his letter, uh, continues writing to these Christians who he's just reminded of their identity, and he continues to say this in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles Listen to this. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, you know, outsiders, um, you could read that as, keep your conduct honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, there's a whole lot in that passage uh, that, that Peter is saying is, is true of believers as we live in the world. But can you see at the basic level the most basic level he's saying this: you are set apart for God, therefore you need to live in a way that is reflective of that calling on your life. Uh, sanctification means that God is changing you so that your behavior more and more reflects the way that Jesus would have his uh, followers live. You've been given a new identity by Jesus. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for your sin. On the cross, Jesus reconciles you to God and exchanges his place with you so that God looks at you and he sees you perfect in Christ. And as he does that, he breaks the power that sin has over your life. And so walking or living into who we are in Christ means that God is at work within us to change us, to make our behavior uh, more and more reflective of... um, of what Jesus would ask of us, what Jesus would expect of us. Because of the cross, you are now brought into God's family. So now because of what is true of your status, God is at work in you to transform you from the inside out. God is changing your heart so that your behavior is more reflective of a follower of Christ. Now, um, I don't know how that, reflect, uh, how, how that strikes you. Um, that, that could be really... I don't know. It could be really invigorating. Um, my hunch is that some of us are kind of going, man, that 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 sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> God changing me, um, changing my behavior, transforming my heart, my values, my my loves. Uh, it, that sounds like a lot of work. Maybe you look at the person you know seated on either side of you and think, you know, this person is a has been a Christian for a long time, and I can't I can't see my life ever looking like their life does. I, I can't think of myself as ever being that sort of Christian that, that I see in front of me. Um, friends, can I, can, I, uh, can I read something to you? Listen to this from um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul writes this. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. That is really good news. God does not start a work in you and then abandon it midstream. And friends, it is true that the work of sanctification will never be complete in this life. Anybody who suggests otherwise is not reading the Bible or living in reality. And yet God promises that he will sanctify you. It is his work. He will do it. He is faithful. He will not give up on you. Sanctification is good news because it is about God's work in us. He's started a work in you. He's not going to abandon it. So uh, sanctification is not something that you do through gritting it out. And just trying harder and thinking and hoping maybe tomorrow uh, my life will actually uh, change if I can just get my stuff together. Um, Sanctification is what God is doing in you. It is God's work. Sanctification is God's work. Okay, so that then raises an inevitable question. If you've been a Christian for more than a week, you've probably wondered, uh, or or should be wondering, then why in the world is it so hard? (laughs) If sanctification is not my work, it's God's work then why does it feel so hard so much of the time? Because the reality is that often what God calls sanctification, what God calls raising us to new life in Christ, it, it feels like death. I mean, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take his cross and, and follow me. Why is, it so, why is it so hard? What you have to see is that in the mystery of God's sovereignty, we have a part to play in the work. Um, I I, I don't know any other way to say that, and I I hope that the theological police aren't going to come after me. But it's absolutely true. In the mystery of God's sovereignty, we have a role to play in God's work in our lives. Maybe no passage better explains that than Philippians 2. uh, Verses 12 and 13, Paul says this. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then in the next verse, he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see what he says? He says to Christians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then in the very next breath, he says, It is God's work in you that is accomplishing this. What what Paul is saying is this. That we have to work out what God has worked into us. Sanctification is is the work where we work out what God has already worked in us. Uh, We tend to think of those things as like binary. Either God's doing it or I'm doing it. But what the Bible is telling us is that in the mystery of God's providence, God's doing the work and we've got to do it. Uh, We have to work out what God works in us. God does the work. He does the most. And we get to walk into the work that he has prepared for us. So I want to try to wrap things up by um, giving you uh, just some, okay, so what does that actually look like? Uh, What does it actually look like to to, uh, work out what God has worked in us? I mean, practically speaking, what does that mean for me? Um, What does that mean for our lives? What does that mean for us here at Resurrection OC? Well, I want to leave you with two um, two kind of points of application. And they're, they're this. Gospel reflection and spiritual disciplines. And really, these are just applications of these two points. Uh, gospel reflection says we have to work into our hearts the, 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 uh, an awareness of the identity God has given us in Christ. And spiritual discipline says... There, there are things that we do as God conforms us more and more to the image of Jesus and, and, and molds and shapes not just our behavior but our thinking and the things that we love. Uh, let, me, let me unpack that a minute. Gospel reflection, it means this, you have to remember who you are in Christ. Um, real good, lasting change happens in our lives when we remember who we are in Jesus. Uh, not through trying harder, not through shame, not through uh, information. But remembering who Christ is uh, reshapes our love. So let me give you an example of what that looks like. And I hope this isn't an oversimplification, but let me ask you this, uh, like, why do you lie? Uh, why, why do I lie? Why do you, why do you shade the truth? Why, why are you tempted uh, at times when somebody asks you a question to um, cast yourself in a better light than you know is, is, is accurate? You know, what, what the Bible would say to us is that anytime you are tempted to shade the truth, it's because your opinion of yourself or another person's opinion, opinion of you has become more important to you than what God thinks of you. And so uh, when somebody asks you a question and the true answer would reflect negatively on your reputation, you are tempted to say, to, uh, to to give a response that is less than completely accurate. And so gospel reflection doesn't look like simply saying, you know, uh, good people don't lie, so don't lie, tell the truth, even when it hurts, suck it up, you gotta do it. But gospel reflection means coming back to the gospel and saying, the two times in the New Testament when God speaks, he looks at his son, Jesus, and he says the same thing. He says, this is my son who I love. This is my son who I love. And on the cross, Jesus exchanged places with me, with you. And what that means is that God takes your, Jesus takes your sin and he gives you his record of righteousness. So when the God the Father looks upon you now, he sees not your sin, not your failure, but he sees the perfect record of Jesus' righteousness on your behalf. And so what that means is that what God says to Jesus, he says to you, as well, and so when God looks at you, He says, "This is my son, this is my daughter who I love. I'm crazy about this person." And so then, in that moment when you're asked a question and you don't want to tell the truth, gospel reflection says, "If the God who created the universe by the word of His power, with that same word speaks His favor upon me, then I can live if this person." thinks a little bit less of me. So I can tell the truth. And in every single situation where you are tempted towards sin, you are tempted to run away from God, you are tempted, what you're being tempted to do is believing that there is something that is more important than what God actually says of you. Or what God has actually done for you. And gospel reflection is learning how to apply the gospel to your own heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. As God reminds you that you are enough not because of your action, but because of Jesus. Gospel reflection um, is about working the promises of God into our own hearts and seeing God's work in Jesus as more beautiful than the false promise of sin. So that's the first part of practically what it looks like to engage in our sanctification. But secondly, uh, we have to engage in spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are habits that shape our loves, Um, let me say it like this, Uh, the longer I go without working out, the less working out feels like a good idea in my life. Does that make sense? Like when I'm regularly exercising, there's a a benefit that comes from it. If I go six months without running, it's like, I never want to do that again, because all I can imagine is the hurt the pain. But the more you actually engage in the discipline of exercise, the more you actually want to be the sort of person who is in shape. Um, Spiritual disciplines are habits that shape our loves. Uh, Maybe another kind of, before I unpack that a little bit, is, is to say this, left to my own devices, almost anything can seem like a good idea. Like I can convince myself that a really great way to spend an evening is to um, mindlessly watch Netflix while eating my children's Halloween candy. Like that sounds like a good idea, right? I mean I could convince myself, you deserve, you know, you deserve it. Um, in the same way, spiritual disciplines, spiritual disciplines are things that God uses to shape what we love. Spiritual disciplines are things that God uses to retune our taste buds so that we love the things that God loves. Um, really, there are... I, there's a lot of things that the Bible says are good things to do, spiritual disciplines to engage in. I, I, I really believe um, that there are four that we cannot live without as Christians. Um, we, there are four spiritual disciplines apart from which we simply cannot cannot grow as Christians. Uh, and and there are these reading the Bible, a prayer and silence, um, engaging in the life of the church and worship and fellowship. And then I don't know how exactly to say the fourth one, but loving people who are far from Jesus in some tangible way. Uh, we we talk a lot about practicing hospitality at our church as a, as a tangible way that we're engaged in loving people who don't know Jesus. Um, I'm going to talk more about, about that fourth one actually in a couple of weeks as we close this series. Um, but friends, what I, what I want you to hear is this. Engaging in these four spiritual disciplines does not make you a Christian. God doesn't love you more if you do them. Um, it doesn't make you better than the person sitting next to you if you do them. And yet there is no way to grow as a Christian without engaging in these spiritual disciplines. Like I don't I don't want to say that like I love you. I, I don't mean to say that like in a in a way that sounds judgmental. Um, if you do these things, you will look more like Jesus. If you do not do them, you will not look more like Jesus. It doesn't mean you're you're, you know, not going to go to heaven. You know, when you die, it doesn't mean God... You cannot do anything to make God love you more, but if you do not regularly engage in spiritual disciplines, you just won't look more like Jesus. Uh, we, we cannot say that God is the most important thing in our lives and we're becoming more like Him if we never listen to Him in His Word, if we don't pray. Um, we cannot live the Christian life alone, and so if we are not regularly engaged in the life of a church, in worship, uh, in celebrating the sacraments, in singing... In being called out of ourselves to something greater than ourselves, Uh, we will, uh, uh, an isolated Christian is a Christian who is sadly, slowly uh, walking away from Jesus. And we cannot claim to have all the blessings of God if we're not willing to share them with those that don't yet have God in his life. Our faith becomes stagnant when we don't serve those who are far from Jesus. Please, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not, I'm not saying like you're, you're an awful person, you're a terrible Christian. We are all struggling at, at, at all of these disciplines all the time. And yet we want to struggle together towards, towards obedience, not simply say it doesn't matter. I know I grew up in a, in a church culture that, that led me to believe that you know, good people are people who get up first thing in the morning and read their Bible and there was a lot of guilt and shame uh, heaped around that. And growing Christian freedom as a, as a teenager and as a college student meant uh, the freedom to not read the Bible. And yet, um, the freedom to not read the Bible doesn't mean don't read the Bible. It just means God's not judging you if you don't read the Bible. But there is no way to grow more and more like Jesus without listening to, me, to what Jesus says. And so that's why we're making a shift in the culture of our church. For the next several months, you know, it'll probably take years before this becomes the culture of who we are. To begin to equip you and train you in um, in spiritual disciplines. Uh, We're we're, we're doing this already with our staff and some of our leaders. Uh, In January, we're going to begin to roll out a course called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's all about helping us engage in spiritual. This is who we are. This is what God is doing in us. Friends, what I want you to hear is this. God has a plan to make you more like Jesus. You might walk into church this morning uh, thinking, I don't know if I can ever change. But the good news is this. It is not dependent on you. God is at work by the power of His Spirit in you. And He has a plan to make you more and more like Jesus. So let me finish with this. This week, I got a call from my wife, uh, a call that nobody ever wants to get from uh, a member of their household. It was a phone call. I actually said, I'll call you right back. She said, I can't, it's an emergency. So I listened and she said, there's water dripping from the light fixtures in our living room. Nobody ever wants to get that call, right? Nobody ever wants to get that call. And so I dropped what I was doing and rushed home and she had turned off the water from the, uh, the, the faucet or whatever upstairs that was, uh, was running. And I got my kids together and I said, I love you. You're my kids no matter what. If I come home and you have burned the house down, I love you. I promise I love you. I will not let you love you less if you flood our house from the third story. But you guys, something has got to change here. <laughs> and that's the implication guys. God loves you. He loves you. He cannot love you more than he does now. Nothing will ever make him love you more. Nothing could ever make him love you less. And yet, friends, something has to change. Because he loves you, he will not leave you as you are. The Spirit of God, if you are in Christ, is alive within you to make you more and more like Jesus. Sanctification is us becoming more like we already are in Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh Jesus, thank you that you love us enough to uh, find us, to call us your own. Thank you that you love us enough to not leave us as you found us. And so, God, I pray this morning that any of us who are here this morning, and God, we know that we are running from you, we, we, uh, we would confess that we believe in you, and yet if we're honest, we're not looking to you for satisfaction. We're trying to keep you at arm's length. We, we, uh, we are looking for life outside of where you promise that we will find it. God, I pray that if that is if that is true, that you would help us to simply repent, to say, God, I'm sorry. I thank you that your spirit is alive within me. Would you keep me close to Jesus, God? For any of us who even just listening to um, these words this morning, know in our heads and our hearts that there is that there is something in our lives that is just not holy, that is not what you would have for um, somebody who claims to be a follower. God, would you uh, convict us of our sin? Would you help us to repent and turn to Jesus? Would we know the cleansing, of power, God, for those of us who are simply trying to put one foot in front of the next day after day uh, in a life that is often good and yet it's really long. And sometimes the length of the journey is just weary, wearisome. God, would you make resurrection and see a place where the Holy Spirit is tangibly present? Would you make us a, a, a community of believers who are encouraging one another to read your word, to pray, to spend time where we just stop in silence, that we would rest and observe the Sabbath as you've called us to do, that we would come together gratefully and joyfully as we worship, uh, as we are in community to one another, with one another. And God, would you send us out into the world as your sent and scattered people. A city on a hill that cannot be hidden. God, we, we can't do this on our own power. We can't do it through um, the right techniques, the right methods, or the right plan. So we need your spirit in our midst. Would you do more in us than we could ever ask or imagine? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.